Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you have this outline in front of you so that you can follow me and not wonder where in the world is he and what is he talking about. We have been talking about Acts chapter 20, a very unusual passage of Scripture. There's no other Scripture passage comparable to it. We have the great Apostle Paul giving his final marching orders to the first Christian leaders, elders of one of the first Christian churches. What would the apostle say as he leaves? This is what he says in Acts chapter 20. So you can see it's a very, very important passage. And we have already looked, if you'll see the outline in front of you, some of the important things he has said. The first thing he said was, follow my example. He gives his own life example of how he ministered in the church at Ephesus. Notice, serving the Lord with all humility. Serving the Lord with tears. Serving the Lord amidst persecution. Serving the Lord by teaching and evangelizing all people. So he's giving the example to them, and he wants them to follow his example. And then in verse 28 to 31, free in your outline, we come to the first exhortation and warning. And we dealt with that last night. Fierce wolves are coming. Guard the flock. Guard yourselves. Even from within the church and within the leadership body, men will arise and they will speak twisted things to turn people away from the apostle to themselves. One of the most serious warnings in the whole book of Acts. And then we looked at some of the vital reasons for why you must guard the flock. The flock is always in danger. And then we concluded with Paul's amazing example of spiritual vigilance and alertness. You can't be a good shepherd and fall asleep on the job. There's always predators, sheep, or a wonderful meal for a wolf, or a lion, or a bear, or a thief. So sheep always have to be guarded. So that's the main exhortation. Guard God's flock. Sheep eating wolves are coming. Now, we look at Roman number four, and we'll end today with entrusting the elders to God and his word, maintaining financial integrity, and helping the weak. We'll cover all three of those points this morning. So, number four, entrusting the elders to God and his word. Paul is now leaving. This is his last time with these men. He says to them, you will not see my face again. And remember, Paul's presence was always a protection from false teachers. And throughout the different churches that he establishes, whenever he leaves, it is not long before the wolves come. The false teachers come and they contradict his gospel of the grace of God. Now, Paul is leaving his co-workers and he's leaving them in a spiritually dark, dark city. R.H. Charles, a commentator, says this, Ephesus 
was a hotbed of every kind of cult and superstition. Emperor worship, the imperial cult, thrived in the city of Ephesus, and every citizen was required to offer incense to the emperor. Refusing to offer incense to the Roman emperor led to much persecution and death in the early years of Christianity. It was also a seaport city, a prosperous trade center known for its immorality. It was not easy to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in this spiritually dark city of Ephesus. Think of some of the dark cities of the world right now. It's not easy being a believer and a follower of Jesus in cities like that. So what is Paul going to do as he leaves these elders in this city of Ephesus? Well, what he does is entrust the elders to God and to the word of the Lord. No better source of strength and safekeeping. So we have as our point here, entrusted to God. Verse 32 in your Bibles. Verse 32. And now I commend you to God. Or I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he has these elders in front of them. They're going to go back to the city. He's going to Jerusalem. He entrusts them into the care of the God of the Bible. The God to whom Paul commits the elders is not some undefined, shadowy figure in the sky. He's not one of the many gods of the Roman pantheon. He's not Aristotle's unmoved mover. He is the infinite, personal, triune God of the Bible. He's the sovereign creator and sustainer of the entire universe. Without him, nothing exists or holds together. He is the absolute controller of all of life's affairs and details. He is the self-existing, self-revealing, almighty God. Listen to Psalm 145.3. Great is the Lord. His greatness is unsearchable. He is so great, he is unsearchable. How can puny little creatures like us understand an infinite God? Do you know what infinite means? Without limits. He is the one true incomparable God. Now, for 40 years, this God sustained Israel in the desert with scorpions and snakes and dry land and no water, no food. For 40 years, God sustained them. And so Paul believes in the God of the Old Testament and that that God will sustain these men in the dark city of Ephesus. Although their beloved apostle and teacher would not return, they were not left helpless and unprotected. There's nothing Paul wanted more than for these elders to get to know God and to trust God. To love God, to know His attributes. How would they do this? Well, the Greek Old Testament had been around for almost 200 years. They would have the Old Testament. 
And that's why the Old Testament is so important to us. Don't just read the New Testament, read the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament tells us of the great attributes of God. He is unsearchable. He reveals himself, who he is, what he wants from us in the Old Testament. The reading of Scripture is the key to sustaining these men, as we'll see in just a moment. Now, my dear friends, the God of the Bible is faithful. So let's say we're trying to think of a theme uh, of the Old Testament. Some big overarching idea. Here's what it would be. God is trustworthy. He's faithful. You can trust him. He always keeps his promises. He's not capricious like the Greek gods. You never know what they're going to do. One day you're their friend, the next day they slap you. No, the God of the Old Testament is a faithful God, a trustworthy God. He makes covenant with his people and he always keeps his part of the bargain. He wants them to know this God and trust this God. This brings us to the fundamental lesson of all Christian living, and it's this. The fundamental principle of every child of God that we must learn and relearn throughout life is daily, moment-by-moment trust in God. That's the first principle. Faith in God. Faith in His promises. Believing Him. Trusting Him. Sometimes it's not easy to trust God. Sometimes things happen in our life that we wonder, where is God? His ways are unsearchable. But He is there and He's always faithful to His people. And someday, we will understand all of these uncertainties and all of these mysteries and complexities that we see in life that discourage us so much at times. We will see the divine plan And God's goodness to us. So, first lesson. Elders, I'm entrusting you to the God of the Old Testament. He'll get you through. However bad Ephesus is, He is with you. You will never be alone. That was the promise of Jesus. Wherever you go, disciple all nations, I will be with you. I have your back. I have you covered. You can trust me. Now, this leads to the second point, which is very similar to the first point. He entrusts them to God's Word. To the grace of God. To the message of the grace of God. Now, these two terms, he entrusts them to God and to the Word of His grace, in the original language, really blend together. One leads to the other. God's works through His Word. Trust God. Yes, but God works through His Word. To know Him and trust Him and believe in Him. It is the divine power of God working through the Word of God that is able. Now notice what it's able to do. It's able to build up the elders in their holy faith and to give them the eternal inheritance that they are to share with all the saints. So what he's saying is, I entrust you men to God and His Word. They go together. God works through the Word. God reveals Himself through the Word. It's the Word that will build you up in your faith. Because you're going to have to be strong. You're going to have to be safe. You're going to need strength. This is it. Right here. One man who knows his Bible is worth more to the church than a group of workers that don't. 
So that's what Paul's saying. I'm going to put you into the hands of God's Word. I hope you all know 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It's the basis of our faith and our belief. All Scripture is breathed out. By the way, that's an unusual Greek word. It may be a word that the Apostle Paul coined himself. Theonoustos. In other words, all graphe, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, where does your breath come from? It comes from inside of you. What's closer to you than your breath? All Scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, this comes from within the very mind of God and the heart of God. And that's the source of the Bible. Not clever people, as if anyone was clever. He entrusts them to the living, breathing Word of God because only the Word of God can build them up and strengthen them and prepare them for the work ahead. Now, this is important for another reason. Everything we do as Christian leaders is done by God-breathed Word, which is profitable. You ever hear people say, oh, there's mistakes in the Bible? Well, the Bible says all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It would not be profitable if it was mistakes. Or if you couldn't trust it. Well, there's a lot of mistakes in here. Well, then it's not profitable. And it's not profitable for teaching or reproof or rebuke or for training people in righteousness and equipping them for the work of God. It's an erroneous book. No, it's not. God does not breathe out error. Period. End of story. You can trust God and trust His Word. And that's what Paul is doing. I entrust you to these two great sources, God and His Word. How are we going to get through the next 10 years in America? With all the changes and the sexual revolutionaries, how in the world are we going to make it? Trust God. Trust His Word. It's the only way you'll make it or you'll be blown away in the tsunami that's wiping over this country. God works through His Word. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. This is brilliant. Are you listening? Don't let me catch you sleeping right now. And I can see you back there. You might not think I can see you, but I can see every one of you. I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique. In anything and everything, but that in which God has placed it, his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity. And that power is focused on the scriptures. Isn't that powerful? God has invested his power and life transforming power Here. That's why you can trust the God and His Word. They both go together. They're not separate. Now, this Word, this Word can build up the elders, safeguard the elders, but it can give them an inheritance with all the saints. 
You can read the best history book in the world. The best geometry book, if you're, if you're that fat-brained. It will not give you eternal life. Will not give you inheritance. Now, everybody loves inheritance. Don't you love inheritance? I got a letter one time, and the letter was from an aunt who had died, and I had received an inheritance. Oh, I was so excited to get her a inheritance from my, my aunt. Well, I read the inheritance thing, and then by the time the state of New York took taxes out, and the lawyer took taxes out, I had to pay taxes. There wasn't much left. That's about what our inheritances are. Or we get inheritance, and I've seen this in our own assembly. People get inheritance, and what do they do? It's gone in one year. It's gone in one year. I could tell you some funny stories of people who got some nice sum of money, and it was gone. We warned them, we warned them again, and it was all gone. This is an eternal inheritance, and it's eternal. And it's secure. That's how powerful the Bible is. It can give you an inheritance among God's people. Guaranteed, and there's no taxes on it. No lawyer fees on it. You get the full package. So, he entrusts these elders to the faithful, eternal God and the life-giving, soul-nourishing word of His grace. Notice, again, we pick up on grace. We saw that last night. The message is a message of grace. God's unmerited favor to the ungodly. We don't deserve it and we can't earn it. He freely gives it of His own free accord. He entrusts them to the word of His grace, the gospel. Now Paul can leave. They will not see his face again, but they're in good hands. God's hands. The one who sustained Israel, the one who says he neither slumbers or sleeps. The one who's far more powerful than Satan and his demonic hosts. Now next, maintaining financial integrity. Now, at this point, we've got a little bit of problem. At this point, it looks like the sermon's over. We've been through, this is what, the fourth sermon, the fourth sermon. It looks like he's done. Doesn't it? It looks like to you he's done. He's just committed them to God and the Word and their eternal inheritance. End of sermon. But that's not what happens. He now picks up a new subject that normally tells us there's something very important here that must conclude this message. The message is not concluded yet, although it looks like it's concluded. There's a final word. Let's see what the final word is that's very important for the elders and the church, as you will see, to understand. Instead of concluding here, he now makes a statement about his own attitude and general policy regarding money and care for needy members in the believing community. He wants the elders to know the importance of the shepherding task includes caring for those who are weak and needing help. Now, the first thing he does is disavow all greed. Look at verse 33. Look at verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Now, 
If you look in the Old Testament, you can see Moses, you can see Samuel, David. All of them at one time or another said to Israel, I didn't take anything from you. You cannot point the finger at me that I fleeced the flock. Paul is concluding on a very important subject, and that's the subject of money and care for the needy. And so he wants the believers to know, not only did he not fleece them, he did not even covet. That's a far stronger statement. I coveted. I desired no one's silver or gold or apparel. Now, anyone can say this, right? But back of these words is dollar signs, you know? You look at everyone as a dollar sign. And if someone has a lot of money, bing, 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 boy, you like be, I like to be with you, brother, and spend some time with you. This is what we're all like. There's no more apt sinister charges made against a servant of the Lord than how they handle other people's money. So in Paul's farewell conclusion, he disavows any greedy motives or exploitation of the flock. In fact, few people could make the open-hearted confession that he makes here. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Now you might wonder, why does he put clothes there? Because in the ancient world, clothes were very valuable, and clothes separated the rich from the poor. Because the moths ate a lot of your clothes, and it wasn't of the greatest fabric, and clothes didn't last that long. Clothes were very valuable. And it gave you status. He said, I did not covet your clothes. He didn't come in and say, Alex, I really like that suit of yours, that jacket. I'd like to have that. (laughs) Maybe you've got another one at home, and you'd let me wear your jacket. Now, I would like to just take a moment to really get the contrast here, Paul, with the prosperity preachers. We see them on television. They're on many channels. They're reaching millions and millions of people. Let's look at the comparison because it's it's stark. Prosperity preachers daily exploit millions of people poverty-stricken, desperate people with their fake healings and get-rich-quick promises. Without shame, these so-called servants of the Lord spend other people's money lavishly. They fly on private jets, stay in expensive hotels, spend thousands of dollars on rich food and drinks and wear luxurious gold and silver jewelry and they buy the most expensive clothes and own lavish mansions, plural, and luxury cars. All this is done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the prosperity gospel. What a comparison is Paul. I didn't even covet. Didn't say I didn't take, because he did take money from the Philippians. This is a stronger statement. I wasn't out there after your money or your clothes. Money did not motivate Paul to serve others. He didn't see people as dollar signs. He is an example to all the servants of the Lord that were not in it for the money. If you're in it for the money, 
you're going to face at the judgment seat of Christ irretrievable loss. That's if you even get there. So often these people that are just money hungry are not even believers. They just exploit believers. And so many fall for it. So you see now, at the end of the sermon, he wants to make something clear. I disavow any greed. No one can point the finger at me and say, you got rich on us. We'll see, he got this teaching from the Lord Jesus. I just read two days ago that one in three churches will be victims of embezzlement. Maybe I better repeat that again. It was quite shocking. One in three churches, according to these statistics, will be victims of embezzlement. Stealing from churches is a much bigger problem than most of us realize. In our own city of Denver, over the years, I've collected articles of how people have been caught stealing sometimes millions of dollars. So we were just at a conference, and I was told by several people of very serious uh, problems with theft in the church. It's bigger than you realize, and in certain parts of the world, it's almost common. It's almost common that whoever gets a hold of the money is going to steal it. Or you don't have to out-and-out steal it. You misappropriate church funds, like the pastor who goes out to nice meals on the church credit card. Or, this was in our paper, the pastor who uh, plays golf twice a week on the church credit card. Fills up this gas tank. Buys nice things on the church credit card. Now, that would be acceptable if the church approved it. If the church approved twice a week playing golf and the church paid for it for ministry, relaxation, that's okay. But they're doing this without approval. So it's misappropriating other people's money. And it's very common. And often people are feel very justified, very justified in spending the church's money on the church's credit card. have to be very careful of things like that. Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians that when they carried that money to Jerusalem, they did it in the sight of God and man. In other words, all above board. That's why he had a group of representatives. He did not carry the money to Jerusalem alone. A group of representatives. So before God and man, they wanted to be above reproach in the handling of money. So when it comes to money, we have to be careful in churches. Money and church, money and religion don't mix. And my father was not a believer until very late in life, like in his 80s. But throughout his whole life, he thought religion was a racket. When he was a young man, a teenager, he was at a funeral. And at that funeral, the pastor gave an offering for the new church building. My father never went to church for the next 60 years. He just turned him off. And when I became a believer and the Lord saw I was, my father saw I was going into Christian ministry to show you how ignorant they were of divine things, my father said to me, well, you can you become the Pope? 
I said, Dan, I'm, I'm Protestant. I'm not Catholic. Yeah, but that's where the money is. If you're the Pope, you'll get money. And he was not joking. Follow the money. <laughs> By the way, I'm not the Pope. Just let you know that. And I'm not going to take an offering. It's a wonderful thing in our assembly, like your assembly. We, we don't take an offering for the public. Because we don't want anyone to think we're in it for the money. What we have is free. Absolutely free. Paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, working with his own hands. Now, anybody can, even the false teachers get up and say, Oh, we're not interested in your money. I I did not covet your clothes. I did not cover your nice new Mercedes Benz. I did not cover that beautiful mansion you have. Anyone can say that, but look at how he lived. That's the key. Look at what he says. Paul appeals to an unusual aspect of the work in Ephesus. He says this, You yourself know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. By the way, it's the third time he says, Look at my example. So he cites his own life example. He worked with his own hands. He was a tent maker, a leather worker. This was not a, a vain boast. I coveted no one's silver or gold. He worked. He worked day and night, he said. To provide his needs, and as you'll see, the needs of his fellow workers. This man's serious about this money issue. He earned his own livelihood through manual labor. And we're told that he ministered to the needs of those who were with him. In other words, fellow evangelists that he was sending out throughout Asia. And that's why I said to you, Ephesus was a missionary sending organization. Now, the next thing is the weak. He disavows any greed, money-making schemes. There's a purpose to this. We're to help those among us who are weak. In all things, I have shown you, verse 35, that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Now, we come now to Paul's final point, essential part of the shepherding task. Part of shepherding people is caring for those among us who need help. Now, I want you to notice also, Paul was not only, he was not greedy, he was big-hearted, compassionate, and eager to help the poor and the needy. And he holds his own example up before the elders. Now, by doing this, he's doing something very, very important he does throughout this whole sermon. He sets the tone. Get that word. Very important. He sets the tone. The church should be generous, big-hearted, and helpful to those among us who are weak and needy. I want to remind you that in the ancient world, if you were a widow or an orphan, you were in real trouble. There was no social safety net. And often, to show you how evil the human heart is, these are the very people who are exploited by religious leaders. Jesus said that. They exploit widows' homes. And they set up Annas' Bazaar in the temple court to make a bundle of money by selling animals and exchanging money. Jesus said, you've taken God's house and made it a den of thieves. This is a big problem. 
Even among the twelve apostles, there was a thief. Judas was a thief, the Bible said. And he didn't care for the poor. He cared about that jingle jangle in his pocket. This is a big problem. Money. Greed is the heart of it. So if you're a widow, and or you're an orphan, you were often living in deplorable conditions. And then on top of that, to be exploited by crooked people, and some of them religious people. Just shows you how horrible the human heart is. Paul is setting the tone throughout this whole address. Notice he says here, I showed you, in other words, example again, in all things, I've shown you. He's been teaching. His life is teaching. I'm an example of how you should handle money, how you should handle needy people. I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. The key word is working hard. It's a favorite word of Paul. It has the idea of working to the point of weariness. It's a strong word. Paul worked hard in manual labor and at gospeling. And he's not a lesser apostle because he has to work and earn his own living and the take care of others. He valued hard work. And in Thessalonians, he wanted the believers to know that he worked to be an example that we should all work and earn our own living. Very often, religious people like to live off of other people's work. Paul's an example that hard work is a good thing. It's a good thing. God prizes it. Christians are not to be idle and they're not to be lazy loafers waiting for others to support them. Laziness is a moral issue. It's a terrible witness to the transforming power of the gospel to a skeptical, unbelieving world. And yet many people in this country think religious people are lazy people and they're just living off other people's money. How can you accuse Paul of this when he had a regular job, he had a profession, and he worked it, and... Night and day, he used the rest of his time to preach the gospel and care for the Lord's people. How could you accuse him of anything like that? His credibility was 100%. Now, he says here, we ought, we must help the weak. In other words, a moral imperative. Now, who are the weak? The weak here are not weak Christians or spiritually. The weak are those who cannot secure basic physical and material necessities due to age or sickness or disability or poverty or social status or any other legitimate reason. Paul is not referring to spiritually weak people in here. He's talking about financial, medical, or personal assistance to people in need. That the church must be the kind of environment where we take care of our own. We don't have people starving to death. And there are all kinds of different reasons. Now, Paul was an Old Testament man. He knew his Old Testament very, very well. He was a trained, a professionally trained rabbi. He knew the Old Testament. 
And he knew over and over in the Old Testament the importance of caring for the poor, the stranger, the widow, the orphan. It's all through the Old Testament. But do we have the same thing by Jesus? The importance of a church being generous and compassionate, having open hands to those among us who struggle in many, many different ways. It's a divine command. We must help the weak. Now, he emphasizes this point by quoting the Lord Jesus Christ. The highest authority is Jesus. And he quotes him to back up his point. We must help the weak. Here's why. We must help the weak and we must remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. This is a beatitude. It's not found in our four Gospels. This is one of Jesus' statements. He made many more. John, the end of John, John tells us he said many more things which cannot even be recorded in all these books so much. These were authentic statements by Jesus Christ. Paul picks up one. They were oral. But by taking it and putting it in the Bible, in the Word of God, it becomes completely authoritative for us today. So, it is one of the Beatitudes of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, when you're immature and when you're a child, it's all about me. You ever notice at Christmas time, you ever notice the greed in the children's eyes and how they look at the presents under the tree? You ever watch that? And the day you open the presents and it says, so happy morning until one kid sees that someone got something bigger and they start crying. Oh, I didn't get that present. And they're greedy little things. They just start fighting with one another. They're mad at dad and mom because they didn't get that present they wanted. Oh, you'll wonder, why do I even give them all these presents? They don't even appreciate this. Step all over them. Take the paper and throw it all away in a second. They don't care about their brothers and sisters. They just want to make sure they don't get chipped. Right? Even my children were like that. I know it's hard to believe, but they were greedy little things at Christmas it came out. But when you get older... And you mature, you're not so interested in what's under the tree. You're interested in what you give. That brings you greater joy. There is great joy in giving and sharing and seeing others blessed. It's a greater joy. Unless, of course, you've never grown up. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That's what our Lord said. And Paul uses that to say, it's a blessing to help the weak. It's a blessing to give and to share. And if we put all the scriptures together, that's one of the reasons we work. The money we get from what we work, we're able to share it with others. Our Lord said a lot about money. You may not know that. And you may not realize it, but I am a wealth manager. A wealth advisor. You didn't know that, did you? I belong to the Jesus Eternal Life Investment Company. 100% investment on your time and money. 100% guaranteed. 
It's better than Fisher's Investments and Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley and Edward Jones. It's the Jesus School of Financial Investment. And I can tell you about it. You can get rich coming to this church. And the riches you receive can never be destroyed. I just saw this morning the stock market's down a thousand points. Not in the Jesus Investment Company. Oh, no, it's going up every day. 100%, Jesus said, investment on your time and your money. The Lord Jesus spoke a lot about investing. And Paul's whole outlook on money and giving was derived directly from Jesus. Jesus provided his people with the wisest financial advice ever given. Invest your money, invest your time in eternal treasures in heaven, not in earthly treasures which are not secure and they're not eternal. Moreover, Jesus warned again and again of the sin of greed and of hoarding wealth. Jesus said, where one's treasure is, there's one true affection. So where is your treasure? Where's your heart fixed? This is sound financial advice. He's never wrong. Your stockbroker may be wrong. He may lose all your money on you. How many people have made lots of money and lost it all? Never in the Christian life. God is no man's debtor. You can't outgive Jesus Christ. It's impossible. He rewards his own. Remember Peter? Peter said, Lord, we, we've given up all. We've given it all up for you to follow you. Jesus said, don't worry. You'll get a hundred times more. Actually, you even get it in this life as well in the life to come. The Lord takes care of His people. And we get a lot more than what we invested. So, it is, it is more blessed to invest in eternal things than to invest in earthly things, none of which are eternal. Jesus even warned, moth, wrath will eat up your investments. That's very true. In other words, your faith and your wallet and your bank account all must be under the teachings of Jesus. I like what John Bunyan said in Pilgrim's Progress. The, the soul of true religion is the practical part. I like that. The soul of true religion is the practical part. Jesus' teaching connects faith and finances. And as leaders and teachers among the Lord's people, we need to teach and practice Jesus' monetary principles of living. And our churches need to be compassionate, big-hearted, generous, and self-sacrificial. Now, the final farewell. And what a farewell it is. And when he had said these things, verse 36 and verse 37, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. What a touching scene we have here at the close of this address. I read an article in a Christian magazine entitled, The Lonely Pastor Atop the Leadership Pyramid. 
I don't feel sorry for him at all. The lonely pastor at the top of the leadership pyramid. Well, if he's lonely, it's his own fault. Because we're in a holy brotherhood. And we're to be brothers and sisters together and bear up one another. No one's at the top all alone unless they just completely disobey the word of God. We are a team. We're a body. Each member contributing. Each member supporting one another. I love what Paul says in Galatians 6. Bearing one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. We're burden bearers of one another. If you're lonely at the top of a pyramid, it's your own fault. Start sharing your life with others. Have partners. Have colleagues. Notice that Paul didn't say, I'm so lonely at the top. I'm the chief apostle. I've started all these churches. I'm all alone. No. Notice the camaraderie here, the emotion, the affection here. They're crying. I mean, Paul must have been a very personable man. And a man who was endearing to other people. He was not distant or impersonal. Someone has said, good leaders not only teach and manage, but more importantly, they inspire others to press forward for God. Paul inspired these men to serve the Lord. He was an example to them. They loved him and he loved them and they knew each other. They shared three years of labor together. And this is the most effective type of uh, discipleship when you work together in the Lord's work. And so we close with this very touching scene of embracing, kissing, weeping. And as we would expect, it closes with kneeling in prayer. In kneeling in prayer, they were not praying to Paul. They were being committed to God, in dependence on God, in moment-by-moment trust in the Lord. And then he would leave. What a beautiful scene. Let us pray. Lord, we think of this marvelous sermon by the great apostle He gave his life for this church. He gave his life for these believers. He loved them. They loved him. There was a closeness and a camaraderie, a togetherness. True brotherhood with Christ at the center. With the gospel of the grace of God at the center. The message of the grace of God. And if there is anyone here today who does not know the message of the grace of God in salvation, open their blind eyes, their heart and their mind to the most marvelous message in all the world, the good news message, the very best news message, salvation provided for ungodly sinners. May they open their hand and freely receive the wonderful life of God within them and eternal life. We ask these things in the name of our Lord. Amen.